The following is a sermon that was preached at Good News Lutheran Church in Mount Horeb, Wisconsin. It was preached on Sunday, September 22, 2019, on the basis of Luke 16, verses 1 through 13. For more information or to view our entire sermon library, visit goodnewslc.org. Thank you for listening. Every now and then, you can get away with using a very surprising tool to accomplish a specific job. Just a couple of weeks ago, I was driving to meet someone shortly after having eaten lunch. And when I pulled up to their house just before I got out, I pulled the old last minute check in the rear view mirror just to make sure there wasn't anything stuck in my teeth from lunch. And sure enough, I looked and there was some sort of black seed stuck right in between my two front teeth. So I tried and I tried and I tried to get it out of there with my fingernail, but no luck. And so I looked around the cab of my car to see if there was anything that could be found that could help me out of this very difficult predicament. And I looked and I looked and I looked and sure enough, there it was. A mechanical pencil came to my rescue (laughs) and saved the day. Every now and then, you can get away with using a very surprising tool to accomplish a job. But out of all the cases where that might be true, I think we'd all agree that one of them is not surgery. Can you imagine you go in for an operation and just before they put you under, the doctor says, oh, by the way, all of the very technical, specific equipment that we would normally normally use to do this operation is actually in the shop getting repaired, but don't don't worry, I found a bunch of stuff in my garage this morning and I'm sure it'll work just as well. As odd as that would sound, and as odd as that is to imagine, it almost reminds me of what's going on in the verses that we're looking at today. For the past several weeks, we've been talking about being divided by Jesus. And in these verses that we have from Luke chapter 16, Jesus is very clear what he wants to divide us from. It came right at the end of those verses. He said, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Today, Jesus wants to divide us from one of the most common things that can come between us and him. He wants to divide us from our money. And just to be clear, that doesn't mean that Jesus wants to take our money out of our hands or out of our wallets, or out of our bank accounts, or out of our college funds. Jesus very much does want us to live generously, but even more than that, Jesus wants to do surgery. Jesus wants to take money out of our hearts. And it's a good thing he says that. It's a good thing he spells it out, because otherwise I don't know if we would get it. Because the story that he uses to try and accomplish that goal is kind of a strange story. In fact, it's a very confusing story. It is arguably the most difficult story to understand that Jesus ever told. So the job that Jesus wants to do is very clear, but the tool that he uses to do it is a bit surprising. And so as we look at these verses from Luke 16 this morning, we're going to see how and why Jesus uses this surprising scalpel, you might say, to perform such a serious surgery. There are lots of confusing and difficult details about this story, but there are some big ideas that we can very clearly and very safely draw. How does Jesus try and cut money out of our hearts? Well, the very first way that he does that is he reminds us of our relationship to our money. The main character in this story is not a guy who owns a bunch of money. He's a guy that manages a bunch of money that belongs to someone 
else. In fact, by my count, Jesus uses that word to describe this man's relationship to his money seven separate times in these verses. It's like a drum that he keeps pounding over and over and over again. Manager, 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 not owner. I think that's maybe one of the easiest ways that money can find its way into our hearts if we forget that relationship that we have with it, that if we think that we own the stuff that we have. I mean, after all, we studied hard for the degree that we have. We worked hard to get the job that we got, and we work hard to make sure that we do that job well. And so naturally, we might be tempted to think that the money that comes from that job is ours, right? Not so. This week, I heard a statistic. I don't know if it's actually true or not, but someone said it was true, that if you earn $30,000 a year, I don't know if that strikes you as a high amount or a low amount, but if you earn $30,000 a year, you are in the top 1% of wealthiest people on the face of planet Earth. Not in all of human history, but right now, you are a one percenter. So might it be the case that you could take your skills and your work ethic and your intellect, and you could put all of those things in different circumstances, circumstances that are far beyond your control and your status in life, the outcome of all of that work and all of those gifts would be much, much different than it is for you. I think it's safe to say that that's the case. It's good for us to remember that we are not the owners of our money. We have no right to claim it for ourselves. All of it is a gift from God. Not only is it foolish to forget that, but even more than that, if we do forget that, that's a quick and easy way for money to get right into our hearts. Why? Well, it's so very easy for us to view the money that we make as a measure of our value as human beings. More than a few people have said over the years that money is the easiest way to keep score in life to see who's winning. If we don't watch out, it's very easy for our net worth to just become our our worth, to forget that we are managers, not owners of all of the money that we have. That's why Jesus keeps pounding that drum over and over and over again. Another big idea that we can get out of these verses is that even though this money doesn't belong to us in the first place, at some point it's all going to be taken away. In the story we hear how someone comes to the master and brings accusations against this manager that he's been wasteful, that he's been squandering his master's possessions. One thing that's interesting is that we don't even know whether the accusations are true or false, but either way, the master decides that this manager needs to be fired. Not only that, but as this manager thinks about his prospects for the future, he realizes, of course, first of all, he's not going to get a very good reference for his next job from his current boss. But then he thinks to himself that he's not at all interested in doing manual labor. He's much too ashamed to do what a lot of people might do today and start a GoFundMe campaign and beg his friends to donate to support his cause. So really, if he were living today, we might say that his only option left is to move back in to his mom and dad's basement and start living there again. Even though none of this money belongs to him, all of it is going to be taken away very, very soon. Again, a very easy way for money to get into our hearts is if we forget that. We might think to ourselves that our job is safe and secure, and it might be. We might think to ourselves that the economy and the housing market and the stock market are all very secure, and, and they might be. We might think to ourselves that if we ever lost our job, we wouldn't be like this guy. We would, we would very quickly be able to go out and find another one, and that might be the case. But even if all of that is true, and I think we'd all agree that not all of that is true, at some point, all of our money 
is going to be taken away. You heard that in the other two readings for today. We brought nothing into this world and we can take nothing out of it. At some point, very, very soon, it will all be taken back. And so why in the world would we want money to be that one thing that is resting in our hearts that we are living for and serving with our lives? Finally, one third big idea from this story is that even though our money does not belong to us and even though it will very soon be taken away, while we have it under our management, you might say, we can use it to accomplish great things. Before this manager has to pack up his desk and hand in his key card, he quickly runs to all of his master's debtors and he has them drastically reduce what they owe his master. Why? So that once he's done, once all of his money has been taken away, so that that he doesn't have to move in to his parents' basement, but instead he can move in with all of his newfound friends. So even though our money doesn't belong to us, and even though it will very soon be taken away, as long as God allows us to manage it, we can use it to accomplish wonderful and great things. Money is the last thing that we would ever want living in our hearts. It's the last thing that we would ever want to be living for and serving in our lives, but it is a wonderful tool that we can take and put to use, that we can use to serve whatever is that thing that we love and treasure most, whatever it is that we are living for and serving, we can use money as a tool in service to that. So those are at least three big ideas that Jesus seems to be teaching in this story. But that kind of brings us back to the question of why he teaches those truths with the story that he does. I mean, I was thinking about this this week. I I think that I could take those three big ideas and I could put them in a story that's much nicer, with much nobler people and a much happier ending. And yet Jesus puts it in this story that seems so, well, so shady, for lack of a better term. That here you've got this manager who apparently has been squandering his master's possessions. When he loses his job, he's too lazy to go out and find another one. And instead, what does he do? He goes behind his master's back and he lowers a bunch of debts that are not his to lower in the first place. And then to top it all off, the manager or the owner seems to praise him for what he's done. He commends him almost as if this was a good thing or or something that we should emulate. Why does Jesus teach these truths in such a surprising way, with such a confusing and difficult story? This is where you run into a lot of differences in interpretation of this parable. As I mentioned before, it's probably the most difficult parable Jesus ever told in terms of trying to understand it. Lots of people have lots of different theories about what it all means. If you ask me, the key to understanding the parable is to pay very close attention to the circumstances surrounding it. So right off the bat, in verse 1, we're told that Jesus told this parable to his disciples. But right after this parable, in verses you don't see, we're told that the Pharisees, Jesus' enemies, overheard the story that Jesus told. And I don't think that that was by accident. Because when Luke mentions the Pharisees in the verse that comes right after this one, he describes them as being lovers of money. In other words, they were the very types of people that Jesus was addressing with this parable, the very types of people that needed the surgery that Jesus was trying to perform. And if you are trying to perform surgery on someone, what is the very first thing that you need to do? 
If a doctor just comes at someone with a razor-sharp scalpel and says, here, let me slice you open, I don't think that's going to go very well. What's the very first thing that needs to happen? That person's defenses need to be let down, right? They need to be put under. And I think that's exactly what Jesus is doing by telling this story to his disciples, but very strategically letting the Pharisees, sorry to pick on you guys, but letting the Pharisees overhear. And not only that, but he does the very same thing by taking these truths that he wants to teach and wrapping them up in a story that seems so confusing, so difficult, so tough to understand. It's a way of very subtly and gently saying to these people, look, there, there are unbelievers. There are people outside of the kingdom of God. There are people of a very low character who understand things about money that you aren't getting. There are people who understand that money is the last thing that you want in your heart, the last thing that you want to be living for. So why don't you? If you ask me, it's really a brilliant way that Jesus uses this very surprising scalpel to perform this very serious surgery. In fact, it kind of reminds me of a story from our world from just this past week. If you are a fan of college football, you know that each and every Saturday, ESPN's college football show goes to the campus of one of the big games that is happening that week. And as you might imagine, when the show comes to town, all kinds of college students show up because they want to be on TV. And in fact, they don't just show up, but a lot of them make signs that they can hold up so that they can be on TV. And as you might imagine, college students have a way of coming up with some pretty creative signs. So a week ago Saturday, this college football show was in Ames, Iowa, for the Iowa-Iowa State game. And there was a student, student of Iowa State by the name of Carson King, who displayed this sign. Bush Light Supply Needs Replenished. He might need to go back to English class. But Bush Light Supply needs to be replenished. And then the name of his Venmo account so that anybody who saw it could wire him money that he would then use to resupply his depleting supply of Bush Light. So this sign that Carson King held up was on national TV first thing in the morning. And by early that afternoon, he had received about $1,500 in his Venmo account. It gets better, believe it or not. As the money continued to roll in, he thought to himself, you know what, I'm not just going to buy beer with all this money. I'm going to do something bigger, something more important. If you're a fan of college football, you maybe also know that at the University of Iowa, right above the stadium, right behind the stadium, overlooking the stadium, there is a children's hospital. And for each and every game, they roll the patients at the children's hospital to their windows so that they can look down into the stadium and watch the game. You maybe also know that in just the past few years, there's this tradition that has been developed that at the end of the first quarter of each game, all the fans in the stadium turn around and they wave to the kids. Kind of touching. So Carson King, as the money continued to roll in, he thought to himself, I'm going to take this money and I'm going to donate it to the children's hospital. And of course, he announced that in the place where you announce things today, important things like that. He announced it on Twitter. And as soon as he announced that, boy, then the money really started to roll in. And not only that, but both Anheuser-Busch and Venmo said that they would match however much money came in that he donated to the children's hospital. So here we are, seven days later. Take a guess. 
$275,000 have come into Carson King, which means that a total of $825,000 are being donated to the Children's Hospital. And not only that, but Anheuser-Busch told him that they'd give him a free supply of beer for a whole year. <laughs> now, are there details about that story that would lead us to conclude that it's not exam exactly the highest example of godly virtue that you've ever heard of in your life? Of course. For starters, let's not overlook the fact that Bush Light is terrible beer, right? <laughs> the guy should clearly have asked for something else. Is Carson King, are any of the executives at Venmo or Anheuser-Busch, are they all Christian people motivated by their love for Jesus that is causing them to do all of this? I have no idea. And I think that's kind of the point. I think that's exactly Jesus' point. It gives us an opportunity to stop and say, look at what is going on in the world around us. There are people out there who get this. Carson King certainly understood that all this money, these thousands of dollars that were coming in, they didn't belong to him. And even though he could have used it not just to buy beer, he could have used it to pay for all of his tuition and pay for all of his books, he realized it was an opportunity to do something much, much bigger than that. And so hopefully, with all of our defenses down, with Jesus' anesthesia starting to kick in a little bit, we can sort of look at our lives and say, is that also true of me? To compare our lives, on the other hand, to the Pharisees and ask ourselves, all too often do we end up loving money, using money selfishly only for ourselves, forgetting that it doesn't belong to us, forgetting that it's all going to be taken away, forgetting that while we have it, we could and really should be using it for much, much bigger things. Hopefully, Jesus' strange scalpel allows us to ask those very important questions and then the surgery that he's intending to perform is successful. Of course, that's just half of Jesus' goal. Jesus said, you can't serve God and money. And, and hopefully with this parable, he helps us see the folly of trying to live our lives in service to money. But in terms of persuading us that we should live our lives in service to God, including using our money to serve God, Jesus doesn't really say much. That's kind of the one thing that in this parable is left unsaid. In fact, here's another area where you get, you get a lot of different interpretations of this parable. But I think at the very most, Jesus sort of hints at the kind of master that we would actually want to serve, the kind of master that this fictional world of the parable doesn't actually provide. As I mentioned before, this manager was accused of squandering his master's possessions. We don't even hear if those accusations were accurate or not. What we do know is that we, too, have an accuser. In fact, that's where he gets his name. The word translated accuse in these verses is the word where we get our word devil. We also know that when it comes to the accusations that the devil brings against us before God, there's no wondering whether those accusations are true or not. This is an open and shut case. We have been wasteful. We have been selfish with the possessions and the money that have been entrusted to us. And yet, how does our master respond to those accusations? Rather than using them as an excuse, not just to fire us, but to send us to the eternal fires of hell, our master instead decides to make himself our advocate, our defense against those accusations. And what's even more remarkable is that he does so 
By taking that debt that you and I have racked up, that debt of our sin, taking it upon himself, paying for that debt with his death on the cross and leaving that debt buried in his tomb. So that as a result, now when the devil comes before God with accusations against us, accusations that are true, absolutely true, all God has to do is point to his books, point to his records where he can show that in the blood of Jesus, all of those accusations and all of those sins have been wiped clean. And not only that, but God still then generously gives us money and possessions and entrusts us with managing them. And not only that, but he, he allows us to be a, a part of something that is much more big and much more important than what's going on in this parable, even much bigger and more important than what's going on in the little parable that I told you. He allows us to be a part of, of his business, of using our money and possessions to show love to others, to be generous in our lives to others, to think that, that with our generosity, with our hospitality, by, by welcoming people into our homes and into our lives and sharing with those who are in need, we might just have an opportunity to explain where that generosity comes from, that it, it comes from a God who has been so, so generous with us. Or to think that by generously supporting the work of our congregation, that as a result of that, the good news of Jesus would be shared with someone in our community or shared with someone in some other part of the world. And to think that as a result of that, when that day comes, when all of our money and possessions are taken away, we would be welcomed into heaven. That we would form not just relationships here on earth, but relationships that last into eternity. That when we show up at heaven's door, someone might be standing there to say, welcome. I remember you. Or maybe we've never met at all, but believe it or not, the reason I am here is because of you. Because of the way that you were generous with the possessions that God entrusted you to manage. Jesus gives us the opportunity to have not just a, a two-to-one return or a five-to-one or a ten-to-one return, but literally an infinite return on the investments of generosity that we make here in our lives here on earth. I don't know about you, but that sounds like the kind of master that is worth serving. With this parable, Jesus doesn't just tell us what we, what we don't want to have living in our hearts. He also at least hints at the fact that this is the kind of master, the only kind of master who is worth having that position. When it comes to Jesus dividing us from our money, might that be a painful thing? Sure. Every surgery is, after all, right? But it's a surgery that we desperately need. And not only is Jesus willing and ready to cut out of our hearts anything that would come between us and him, including our money, he is also willing to put in those hearts the one and only thing that is as loving and as generous and as forgiving that it deserves to be there. Amen. <laughs>